morning, Icon. Hey, Hellers. <laughs> How's it going? Good. <laughs> All righty. Well, if you will remain standing, uh, it is good to be with you guys today. If I haven't met you, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here, uh, and we will have our scripture reading for today. It comes out of Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this, this section of Jesus' sermon. I thank you that you inspired and helped the Apostle Matthew to remember these words of Jesus and to record them for us that we might be helped today in a very key and very critical practice of the Christian life in prayer. And so, Father, I pray that, that you would help us to understand a little bit more about prayer, certainly, but, but more than that, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us a sense of ambition and even a sense of dreaming of what you call us into through prayer. God, would you begin to today kind of deconstruct some of the doubts and cynicism we have around prayer and then around many of the things that we may have prayed for but not heard answers for? Would you give us comfort? God, would you unite your power with my weak words and cause us, invite us to come to you through prayer today, God. We love you and we entrust this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Icon's been through a lot uh, and we, uh, surprisingly, in what Icon has been through, we have actually not had much division in our church. But I have some questions for you today that may cause division in our church, finally. Um, first one, LeBron or MJ? MJ. MJ? MJ, MJ. Did I hear any LeBron? Oh, Scott, get out of here, man. Uh, Apple or Android? Apple, yes, if you said Apple. Yes, Scott, you do have an Android, golly. Um, Republican or Democrat? I'm just kidding, don't answer that one. I'm just joking. I'm joking, don't, don't do that one. Uh, how about this, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Star Wars, 
Wars. Yes, if you said Star Wars, you are correct. Um, I, I love, I love Star Wars. Uh, growing up, I was always kind of captured by the story of Star Wars, and I've always been a kid and an adult who has a very vivid imagination. Um, I've always been someone who like has a has a really large sense of wonder in what could be. And Star Wars uh, specifically captured that imagination. And honestly, guys, for a long time, shamefully for a long time, I really believed somewhere, somewhere, Star Wars was a documentary. You know, like, like it, it, it was real. I was, I was so convinced as a young kid that I could become a Jedi. <laughs> you know, that weird self-centeredness that you have as a kid where it's like, no one knows it, but I am. You know, like, I'll be the one to bring the force into our world. Uh, and, I, and I remember very clearly uh, when I was 12, maybe I shouldn't say my age, gives me away how long I believe this, but when I was 12, uh, I didn't have much friends, so I was, I was in our backyard, and I played baseball as a kid. I, I remember there was, a, there was a baseball on the other side of the backyard, and I remember for a shamefully long amount of time just, you know, like trying to move it. And it was a baseball, so it was heavy, so I would know if it moved. I couldn't blame it on wind, uh, but, it, but it never, never happened. Um, uh, yeah, we, I had this naivety, right? This, this childhood, fanciful naivety of what I could do. I, I really thought that some mysterious force could actually come through me and affect what was around me. I, I was eager, I was hopeful, and I was even expectant, like really believing that this mysterious thing called the force could actually be real. And now, of course, we, we all know that that was just childhood naivety, but as I was reflecting on the passage for this week, here's the question that came up. Is prayer just like that? Is prayer something we can be hopeful about, something we can be eager about or even expectant about, but in the end find that it's just a spiritual naivety meant to kind of ease our sense of loneliness or our existential sense of powerlessness in the world? Well, I'm a Christian pastor, so I would say no, but, but many, in our, many of our neighbors here in Seattle would, would say yes. The, the idea of prayer is seen as fanciful naivety that to many of our, our neighbors, or, or even worse, the idea of prayer is seen as sometimes dangerous, a, a dangerous barrier to supposed progress, right? Whenever, whenever tragedy hits, you cannot say that you are praying for those who are affected. Prayer in the midst of tragedy is in many ways seen as a, a platitude that is secretly meant to mask our inaction. Sadly, some of that's been true. Many Christians have prayed and done nothing. The Apostle James actually talks about that. But we're no longer allowed to say that we send thoughts and prayers. We can say good vibes as if that's any better. But to our, our watching world, the idea of thoughts and prayers is Fanciful. It's, it's not a secret, and it's no surprise that the irreligious would find prayer fanciful or even dangerous. That doesn't really concern me. But what does concern me is that I rarely see much that is different from the Christian community. What, what concerns me is that Christians seem relatively content with getting going in life or, or keeping going in life completely unattached 
from the practice of prayer. And you know, we're, we're Christians, so we might feel a, a tinge of guilt that we should be praying, but in the end, if our thoughts were just laid bare, we would be found guilty of, of the same thinking that our irreligious neighbors have. Prayer is just religious spiritual naivety. It's all just a fantasy. That's what many of us would not admit, but our lifestyles out us with that type of thinking. We, we don't pray. And all of this, I think, both from the Christian and irreligious, is due to what the, the Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. So in his massive 900-page book called A Secular Age, all about secularism and, and modern secularism and how it works out today, uh, Charles Taylor puts forth, puts forth this idea of what's called the imminent frame. Now, the imminent frame is the idea that our default frame of reference, the, the point from which we live our life in the 21st century is within the imminent frame. And the imminent frame means that everything that exists is right in front of you. Every, everything there is, is observable. That, that we live in a, a closed system, cut off from any sort of intervention any, uh, from anyone or anything outside of what we can see. And so everything is observable. Everything is maybe predictable. Christians believe that too. We have cut out in our thinking and in our living the possibility of intervention from the outside. And if we had to choose one word to define prayer, it would be just that, intervention. That there is intervention, the default frame of reference for our irreligious neighbors and sadly the default frame of many Christians today is just that. What is and what could be is simply there. It's already there. Whatever is going to happen is already there. There's, there's no intervention from the outside. You can add some elbow grease to the story of the universe and maybe get a little bit of what you want, but don't count on any inter intervention outside of the material world. But friends, I have the great privilege today of preaching to you otherwise. That the Christian scriptures point to a God who is in fact in the habit of intervening. His, his love is to intervene in this world. That the God of the Bible, I say this all the time, is not aloof, is not uninterested. Deism is a lie. There is a God who sees and who cares and wants to intervene. And though his intervention is freely his to do and his to choose, he is free in the truest sense of that word. The Bible calls his people to actually ask him to intervene, which is prayer. This asking of intervention is called prayer, and it's the topic that Jesus picks up here in this section on the Sermon on the Mount. So let's, let's jump in and, and talk about prayer. Now, now, Jesus kicks off his little section on prayer uh, in a similar way, talking about a similar thing to what he did when he talked about giving to the needy. Don't do it in order to be seen. Now, when we went through verses one through four, I was relatively concerned that many of us do give to the needy or perform acts of justice in order to be seen. One thing I'm not concerned about is because I love you and I know you, I'm not concerned about you praying in order to be seen. I'm concerned about you praying. 
I'm concerned about you praying. And so what, what we're going to do today, where we're going to focus most of our attention is actually on verses 17 through 15. And we're going to see how Jesus sets up prayer. He kind of locates it for us, what the power is and, and what to pray for. And then uh, we'll talk about some things at the end. So, so let's, let's jump in. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus's first teaching point on prayer is where he locates the power of prayer. Jesus identifies for us the, what, what he shows, the, the futile prayers of the Gentiles. Now, in the, in the Bible, the, the Gentiles is a, a category of people of basically anyone who is not an Israelite, anyone who is not Jewish. Now, eventually, uh, good news for us, because most of us are not Jewish, uh, eventually in the Bible, those who are Gentiles are included into the people of God through Christ. But at this point in the story, the Gentiles are still relatively pagan. There, there may be a few of them who have come into Israel and have adopted a Jewish lifestyle, but most of the Gentiles that Jesus is referencing here are people who are worshiping the false gods of Rome at that time. They were pagans, and, and in their pagan practices, Jesus says that they would use prayer as an opportunity to convince their gods to actually do something. They believed that the more convincing they were with their lofty phrases or with their long prayers, the more likelihood they had of actually being heard. But Jesus here pushes against that, pushes against that framework and shows that the true and living God has no concern for your convincing him in prayer. And this is where we find something incredibly important about prayer. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Prayer, always, prayer is not persuasion. Prayer is not persuasion. I know many of us are, are very persuasive and it's something we kind of use in our life. I myself am a very persuasive person. Has anyone here played the game Mafia? Yeah, the group game, all around lying. It's hard to say this as your pastor, but I'm really good at that game. I'm really good. In fact, when my wife and I, when Courtney and I were dating, we were in a home group and we played mafia every now and then. And it was kind of a problem in our dating relationship, how good she saw, how good she saw I was, how good I was that she saw I was. I'm good at lying, but I'm not good at talking. You got it. She saw that I was good at being persuasive and she was concerned. I was so good at convincing people that I was not the murderer. And then in the, inevitably, like at the end of the game, everyone's like, it's you again. You know, they just, they, they could not get past me. I'm a, I'm a very convincing person. And Mary, very many of us are convincing people. But friends, that persuasiveness, that personal charisma, being able to bend people to your will or what you think has got to be checked at the door when you enter into prayer. Precisely because, as Jesus shows here, it is completely unnecessary. It is completely unnecessary to persuade God. The, the, the power of prayer is not my persuading God. 
It's not me persuading him, but rather what Jesus identifies here is that the power of prayer is located within the character of God. As Martin Luther once said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. That's what prayer is. So Jesus, Jesus shows us here that our hope in prayer is not our persuasiveness. It's not us building a case with God. But the power of prayer is within God's character. Prayer is effective. Prayer is powerful. Not because you are personally persuasive. Not because you convince God, but because God is already good. Before you open up your mouth to ask for something, Jesus says God already knows what you need. And so when we actually ask through prayer, we're not informing God of our needs and then building a case on why he should, why he should give what we're asking for. We're not catching God up with what we need. Rather, when we enter into prayer, our prayers are immediately coming into contact with a God who is already aware and already willing. Our prayers don't wake up a, a sleepy and indifferent God. Our prayers don't get God up to speed on where we're at and what we need, but rather our prayer is the act of catching up to what God already knows and is already willing to do. <laughs> the power of prayer is located within the character and the goodness of God. If there's any power, if prayer is ever effective, it is not because you built your case it's not because you were persuasive, but because there was already something in God's heart that wanted to move, that wanted to give. And yet at, at this moment, I think we find some tension, don't we? Do you feel it? Let, let, let's read what Jesus says in the text and, and see if you can pick up on this text or on this tension. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Do you, do you feel the tension? God knows what you need. So when you pray, pray like this. We've just been told that there's a God who already knows and is already willing to give us what we need and even what we want at times. And now we are told to ask this God of what he already knows we need. <laughs> this is a consistent question around prayer. The, the question, is, if God knows and if God is willing, what's even the point of asking? Why do I have to ask God to do something if he already knows that I need something? And it's within this tension that we find another important aspect of prayer. Prayer is about relationships. Prayer is always about relationship. I have wonderful news for you today. That there is a God who made you, who loves you, and who wants to be near to you. He wants to invite you into a intimate relationship where you can know him and he can know you and you can see his glory and beauty. There's a God who made you who wants to be close with you. That's wonderful news, and one of the avenues through which he chooses to cultivate that type of relationship, that type of closeness, is through prayer. God's desire 
of relationship with you and his command that you pray for what he already knows you need, those things are completely connected. Prayer is about relationship. It's about relationship. And so we, we, we find something important in this. If God already knows what I need and yet tells me to ask of him what he already knows I need for the sake of relationship, what does that maybe clue us into about our, our, our prayer life? How does that, what does that teach us even deeper about prayer? I'm gonna tell you something that some of you theology nerds are, are gonna be mad at. It tells us that there are certain things God wants to do in your life that he will not do until you ask him. There are things that God wants to do in your marriage. There are things that God wants to do in your personal life, in your work, in your mental health, in your relationships, in this city, in this church, that he wants to do and is willing to do, but has decided he will not do it until you ask. Now I know, like I said, some some of you are are already kind of feeling, Listen, I believe in a big God. I preached to you last week about the transcendence of God, remember? That nobody can stay his hand. That no, nobody has any right to look at him and say, what are you doing? He's God, he can do what he wants. Hard stop. And one of the things he wants is for you to ask. Hard stop. Those two things exist together. God, because he wants to cultivate relationship with you, because he prizes relationship and refuses to just be a spiritual utility for you, God will hold back certain things that he wants to do in your life until you ask him for the sake of relationship. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a father, and I feel like I use my kids all the time, but okay, we're saving up for counseling for them, so if they ever need it, they'll have it. And one of the things that I've found, especially with my four-year-old daughter, is that like, one of my goals as a father, among many other things, is to convince my children that they really have a dad they can come to who loves them already. I I, want to convince them of the generosity of their father's heart that loves them and wants to give, wants them to to have things and wants wants to help them with what they need. I I, want to convince them of that. And specifically right now with my four-year-old, one of the ways I'm trying to convince her of that is by not doing certain things for her until she asks me. Because she won't be convinced of my love She won't be convinced of my generosity if I allow it to be something she just presumes upon, right? I wanna give her objective data and experience that her dad has a heart that wants to give. And so because of that, sometimes I don't help her. That sounds weird. No, it's not. Because I want her to ask me. I want her to have the experience of asking me for it and watching me immediately respond. And that's the same thing with God. God wants to give you so that you can trust him, so that you can know that he is good 
and to keep you from running this Christian life of presumption. Presumption doesn't work in any other relationship, right? But we think it will with God. No, because God wants relationship with you and wants you to trust him and experience his goodness and love, he will withhold certain things back until you ask him so that you can see the objective data and experience of him responding, giving you what you need, giving you even even what you want at times. Prayer is about relationship. So with all of this foundation of prayer set up, Jesus tells us what to actually ask for next. Pray then like this. But let me ask you first before we get into this. I want you to answer this question honestly. What do you really believe that you can pray for? Answer that question in your head. What can you pray for? And I don't want your Jesus theological answer. What can you pray for? Okay, so here's a better question. What do you pray for? Are there pockets of your life that show up within your prayer life more often than others? If so, look at at what Jesus tells us to pray for. Pray then like this, which means we don't have to use these exact words, but he provides us some categories to pray for. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Friends, within these categories, we see the breadth and depth of life. Everything, we're we're told to pray for very large things, like God's glory. God, glorify your name. You're the one who's worthy. Will you do the work of showing people your beauty and glory? We're told to pray for the expansion of God's kingdom and the exercise of God's will all across the globe on earth as it is in heaven. That's a large prayer. And then Jesus specifies it down to some very small things right after that. Jesus tells you to to pray for your specific daily needs. What do you need that day? Both with food, maybe, but also what, maybe what conversations do you know you're going to walk into that day that you need some mercy for? What do you need that day? Jesus tells us to pray for the spiritual, emotional, and even psychological peace that comes from being forgiven. Lord, would you, would you forgive me my sins against you, my specific ones? He tells us to, to pray for the repair and restoration of relationships through person-to-person forgiveness. He tells us to pray for our personal character. Lord, would you, not lead, would you help me to not be led into temptation? You know the, the specifics of my heart. You know where I'm prone to fall. You know where sin has its hooks in me still. Lead me not there. And then he tells us to, to, to pray for the release and protection from evil, pain, suffering, and malevolence. Do you see what Jesus is trying to get across here? There is not a piece of your life that doesn't in some way fit within these categories. There's nothing too large that you can't 
genuinely ask God to do. There's nothing too small. There's nothing too specific that you can't ask God for. He he wants you to bring all of your life into prayer. And so the lesson is never hold back a prayer. Never hold back a prayer. If there is a desire that you have, anything, if there's a desire that you have, translate it all into prayer. Every bit of it. Don't let something go by. Don't, you know, sometimes we hold back our desires from prayer, right? Because we're worried that this might not be a holy desire. <laughs> this might not be, this might be a selfish desire. I don't know if I should ask God for this. Guess what, friends? God is smart. You don't have to always figure out. You don't always have to be the one filtering your desires. You can pray your desires and trust that there's a living God who knows what should happen. Who knows your heart, who knows when it's selfish, who knows when it's not good for you. You can trust him to do the investigative work. And so the lesson is never hold back a prayer. Your job is not to to, to become the filter of your desires before you pray them. God can filter your desires when you pray them. So Jesus here in his Lord's Prayer opens up these categories that cover all of life. So we should never let a desire, a need, a dream, a wound go unprayed for. God wants to hear it all. And he can sort it out as we give it to him. So as we, as we land the plane, the power of prayer is located within the character of God. Everything we pray, if it's ever effective, is not because we persuaded God, but because God is good and effective. God wants us to pray. God wants to do things in our life that he won't do until you pray. And your prayer life can cover all of life. And as we land the plane, I want to address what is an uncomfortable truth within the room anytime you preach on prayer. There are prayers here in this room that have been given over to God for years. For years and still have not been answered. Not even a no yet. Some of you haven't heard a word I've said because you've been waiting for me to get to this piece. What about this thing that I've been praying? What about this wound? What about this desire that I've been praying for for years? Or even even this prayer that Jesus gives us. Friends, the church has been praying this prayer for centuries. And it often doesn't seem like God's will or God's kingdom is advancing. In fact, it seems like evil overruns the world and even our personal lives. How do, how do we think about that? Well, first, I think there's a clue. I'm going to give two reasons. First, there's a clue in what Jesus goes into right in verses 14 and 15 as to why some prayers are not answered. Did you see what he did? He tells us what to pray for and then immediately says, If this prayer doesn't get answered, here's why. Look look at the text, verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive their trespasses. It's amazing. Jesus gives us a a very clear answer right at the end of his prayer. What what is he doing? He's certainly teaching something about the dynamics of forgiveness, of seeking forgiveness from God when we're a jerk to everyone else, telling us to repent of that. But I also believe the reason why he picks this one out from everything else he told us to pray about is because this one right here is the easiest one to really see the condition of our hearts when we're praying. We, we, can, we can fake it and the rest of it. We can have a condition of our hearts that don't really care, that just kind of rotely and routinely say, God, give us our daily bread, and not really think much about it. But Jesus here says, if you ask for forgiveness and you don't forgive others, that shows you exactly where your heart is. Jesus says that one of these prayers will not be answered if you don't have a certain condition of heart. That the condition of the heart matters. That's the principle here. Jesus makes it specific with forgiveness, but the principle is the condition of your heart matters in your prayer life. It's the reason why James says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. Do we believe that? We just went kind of right. We we run over that. He's worried it's legalism. No, God wants your heart to match up with what you're praying for. We have to pray from a heart that is not just submitted to God and what we want. We don't just get, here it is. We don't just get to submit to God what we want and then go on living a life not submitted in what we know he wants. The condition of our hearts matters when we pray. And sometimes when we ask for something, God knows the condition of our heart that we're not really in it for him or for a relationship or even for the good of our neighbors. And so he withholds. But this isn't always the reason why prayers don't get answered. This is not always. Listen, I am on year 17 of an unanswered prayer. I have been praying for the last 17 years that God would take from me my OCD. I've wanted him to release me from it. And not the OCD where it's like, oh, I just want pencil straight on my desk like Hollywood shows. No, the intrusive, haunting thoughts. God, release me from this. I've been praying that for 17 years. And it's not happened. Is it because of the condition in my heart? I don't think so. Maybe at times. No. I've prayerfully screamed out that the Lord would release me from my OCD, but the intrusive thoughts still come. So I I know what unanswered prayer feels like, when it feels like a good thing, when it feels like you're praying according to God's will and nothing is happening. What do we do then? Or maybe what what have I done in those seasons? What, what, What I think we need to do in those unanswered prayers is zero in on who Jesus specifies we are praying to. Our Father. 
That, that matters. Throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls God Father 17 times. 10 of them show up here in this close in, in, in chapter 6. Jesus is trying to get across that you're not just praying to a God who's there. You are. You're not just praying to a God who's powerful. You are praying to a father. Always. Which means that in our unanswered prayer, we should resist a orphan mindset, this scarcity mindset. And that's again, to kind of bring it all back, that's what gets us to convincing again. Something goes unanswered and we feel like we gotta, we're not persuasive enough. There's something we gotta do, there's something we gotta say. No, that's an orphan mindset. What needs to happen is for us to zero in that we have a father we can trust. That he does love us. There are things that we can know about him that comfort us. Because we have God as father, we can resist letting the things we don't know about him, keeping us from taking comfort in the things we do know about him. And submit to him those wounds of unanswered prayer. Let me tell you this. I still don't know why, I still haven't had an answer, you know, from God about why my OCD is still there. But what I do know is that that anxiety has created a path into the presence of God that I never would have found apart from it. It's, it's got me to a place where I can say to my father, better is one day in your courts than a thousand free from anxiety. Better is one day with you than a thousand of what I think would be a peaceful and healthy mind. God has, whether this is the purpose or not, and I'm not saying this is your purpose, I'm just giving you my testimony that, that whether that's what God wants or not, I don't know, but that's what's happened. God has directed my heart through the pain of anxiety to see things about him and feel things from him that I never would have had apart from that. You know who does something like that? Someone who loves you, who knows what's best for you, someone who is a father. And so friends, in, in your unanswered prayer, we can safely continue praying from the place of a child. Maybe your unanswered prayer has caused you to run. Maybe you've, in areas, given up on God. Even there, you still got a place to run because Jesus died to give you a prayer life and Jesus died to give you a father. You can still run to him. That no matter the inconsistency of your prayer life, no matter the ways that you've accused God in ways that are sinful, you can still run to him because Jesus Christ took on your sin, opened up a way. I say this every time we do communion, that Jesus' body was torn open to make a way for you. So friend, today you, you can run back to him. Jesus died to give you a, a safe home within the heart of God 
that will actually calm us and comfort us when what we want or what we think we need goes unanswered. The gospel gives us a prayer life and the gospel gives us a safe father to continue crying to. Let's pray. Father, really want to linger on that word. There's so much wrapped up in that title. We can't help but feel and, and remember our own fathers, whether, whether for better or for worse. But God, we look to you as the good father. The one who knows, the one who loves, the one who sees, who calls us into closer relationship through the means of prayer. Not because you're selfish, but because you know that's the best place for us to be. We are most alive as human beings in relationship with you. And so I thank you that you use prayer to invite us into relationship with you, to bring us closer. And so Father, I, I pray that where there are, are wounds right now among us, where there are unanswered prayers, where there are just painful things that maybe we've just stopped asking you for because we are tired of what feels like silence. God, would your answer be that word, Father. That's not a platitude. It is real comfort and the place we all long to be. So would you convince us of our place as children that Jesus died to give us a prayer life, to cleanse us of our sin so that we can come to you always and make our request known to you to receive mercy and help in our time of need. Would you convince us of that and would you help our hearts to run to you? In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.